Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 313, Does God Keep Score? This week, Steve discusses how Jesus dealt with the problem of sin on the cross. He investigates the theological traditions surrounding the work of the cross and the implications of those traditions. Unfortunately, there was an audio glitch that presented itself during the recording of this episode, and we were unable to remove some of the resulting noise. I hope you're able to enjoy it nonetheless. Lord, we've been we've been pursuing what Paul called the unsearchable riches for a, a few months now. Now, Lord, we're getting into the really deep water of the cross and the the great mystery of the cross. Now, Lord, I feel like we could we could spend months and months and months on this and and not begin to plumb the depths, but I ask that just in this period of two or three weeks, you would uh, help us all. Lord, I ask for anointing. I ask for all of us to have revelation from above. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we, we really do stand amazed at the work of your cross. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Last week, we started... Um, on the mystery of the cross and and the paradigm that we looked at was the cross and the incarnation and i focused very much last week on what was happening to jesus at the cross tonight uh, i'm going to move more into what was accomplished at the cross um, how the church has understood this throughout history uh, it's very interesting that although we have various creeds, uh, especially the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed, uh, that talk about the nature of the Trinity, there was never any creed talking about the cross, which is very interesting to me. So we're going to try to delve into that some tonight. Uh, Reviewing last week, I said that the cross reveals God. I said the cross is a, a profoundly Trinitarian event. Um, And it's not to be seen as somehow the Father versus the Son. The cross is about the recreation of all things. We talked about that uh, a few times over the last month or two. But at the cross, that was the great dividing line. And whereas death was at work in all of creation, beginning at the cross, life is at work. And that's why I say it's a recreation of all things. The, the cross is so much bigger than what I had been taught. Maybe many of us have been taught that essentially the cross is about God's plan for me to go to heaven. <coughs> Excuse me. What we said thirdly, when Jesus is on the cross, he was fully God and fully man. Therefore, the cross reveals exactly who God is and what he's like. The fourth thing we talked about, we're obviously going very quickly. You can go back and and look at last week's if you want to develop this more. But Christ suffered on our behalf. He didn't suffer in place of us. Rather, he joined us in suffering. The cross is not a way around suffering, but it's about fellowship with Christ in the midst of our suffering that because of the cross, he is a saving companion. 
Uh, I think I referenced a favorite verse of mine, Psalm 77, 19, that his way is through the midst of the turbulent or mighty waters, not around it. The fifth thing we talked about was the cross as the axis of love, which is a term Brian Zond has coined, and I find it very helpful. The crucified Christ, and now we're really into the mystery part, but the, but the crucified Christ uh, is so much more than a historic event that happened, which indeed it did. But the crucified Christ moves us into a whole new reality that fills the whole universe with his cruciform love. I go all over the world. I, I did it again. I did it again last weekend in New Jersey, telling people that the whole rhythm, the whole movement of the cosmos reflects the creator. And that movement is what we're going to use the term here, the cruciform Christ. It is that movement of self-emptying, that movement of mercy, that movement of forgiveness. Um, in fact, and so the cross is an axis of love. And I believe that in, in a sense, trying to put words to this, it's like the reality of all creation, all the cosmos revolves around this, this axis of the cross and what took place. It is so much bigger than I ever realized. Um, the cross transcends time and space. We talked within this axis, we tried to put some terminology around it. The first thing I talked about was it's marked by forgiveness. Um, Jesus' very first act on the cross was, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Not only did he forgive, he made excuses for them. And the second thing I see is that Jesus did not die on, the, on that hill alone. He died in the company of bad people, which of course he did. If we look at his life, you know, we often say uh, John 1, 5, he ran into the darkness. He lived his life in the company of people that, uh, that others thought were beyond redemption. The third thing we talked about is reconciliation. And I said that reconciliation is, is again part of the whole movement of God. And therefore reconciliation must mark all, all of us who will follow Christ. And we are challenged. I'm sure we are all challenged. I am often challenged. But if I'm going to follow him, I always have to move in the direction of forgiveness, of, of self-emptying, canonic love, and reconciliation. And that was the last thing we talked about, kenosis, that word from uh, Philippians 2, which means um, the, the emptying. Jesus emptied himself, and this is the prime example of God's nature. So there, we just covered an hour in five minutes. <laughs> Moving into tonight, as we look at trying to understand the cross, it's really important in everything that I say tonight that we understand we can never sidestep the issue of sin and related to that of evil and injustice. Um, our understanding of the cross must address these. And as we look at, at this, it, it, let me just say, don't get your eye off of that. The cross must address the issue of sin. God the Son takes the result of sin, which is suffering, 
And we talked quite a bit about suffering in the Incarnation and some last week. But he takes the result of sin, suffering upon himself, and thereby becomes the means of reconciling the entire cosmos to the triune God. He doesn't reconcile some people, folks. He doesn't reconcile those who have prayed a sinner's prayer. The scripture is so clear that he reconciles everything. In fact, I gave you Colossians 1.20 last week. I'll give it to you again. Through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. Say all things. All things. Whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood on his cross. Now, the blood of his cross. The meaning for us and all creation is, is it's too enormous. It's too wonderful for us to, to ever fully understand. Uh, Joseph Ratzinger, uh, who was, many of you know as Pope Benedict, he wrote a wonderful three-volume set, Jesus of Nazareth. And let me quote from this. He said this about the cross, the wonder of it, the mystery of it. The darkness and irrationality of sin and the holiness of God, too dazzling for our eyes, come together at the cross, transcending our power of understanding. Isn't that an amazing thing? So, now I want to begin to look at how the cross has been viewed through the history of the church. And the first point... I need to make is actually about something called original sin. And many of you know it, many of you have been taught that, um, that um, in, in Adam we all sinned. When he sinned, we all sinned, right? You've heard that. Um, in the early uh, 5th century, St. Augustine, who's, who's a giant among the church fathers, especially the Western fathers, but he uh, first put up the idea of original sin. And over the next few centuries, uh, this was really embraced by the church. The, Ref the Reformation, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, etc. The Reformation of the 16th century, for them, uh, St. Augustine was a major influence on them. Major influence. Now, Augustine based his idea of original sin largely on Romans 5.12, which he translated as, in whom, meaning in Adam, all sinned. He taught that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Therefore, everyone is born already guilty in the eyes of God. I'm sure you guys have heard this. It's, it's a fairly basic tenet of, of Reformed theology. However, I think you knew there was a however coming out. <laughs> Augustine wrote this based on the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of the scriptures, which had many errors and poor translations. St. Augustine actually uh, had very little Greek, was very weak in Greek, which was, of course, the language that Paul and, and wrote in the New Testament, written in. So, rather than, as he thought it said, in whom uh, it, Adam all have sinned, what it really says is, therefore, just as sin entered into the cosmos through one man, and death 
through sin, so also death pervaded all humanity, whereupon all sinned. Now you're thinking, what's the difference? Well, here's the difference. Adam's sin led everyone into a a propensity, a tendency towards sin. It is not that we inherited Adam's sin, that simply because we're his ancestors, we sinned when he sinned. We sinned, original sin is not to be understood in legal judicial terms. We're going to talk more about that in a few minutes because that is the pervasive grid of the Reformation, a legal judicial frame of reference. Rather, original sin means that we are born into an environment where it is easy to do evil and hard to do good. It's easy to hurt others, hard to heal their wounds. Therefore, we're not to be surprised at our own failures and frailties or those of others. Do you hear the difference? What Augustine was saying is it's automatic because Adam sinned, we sinned. What Paul was really saying is He brought sin into the world, and we are very prone to it. But not that it's automatic. So why does that matter? (coughs) Here's the significance of the original sin doctrine. After Augustine, because of what he taught about original sin, there was a shift in the church. It probably, it took about four centuries But now in the church, there's a shift from the basic view of God's relationship with his creation of being, it is good. Remember we talked about that several weeks ago? I think when we were talking about, I think it was Sabbath rest. The basic thing, it is good, which he says repeatedly, right? In the creation account, Genesis 1. This original sin doctrine shifted things off of Genesis 1 and on to Genesis 3, what we call the fall. I know personally, I came, my first 10 years was very strong Reformed theology, and we heard a lot more about chapter 3 than we did chapter 1. This worldview, which is about the sinfulness of man, reduced the gospel of reconciliation it reduced the gospel of ultimate fulfillment of all the cosmos into a fix for a problem. And some of you have even heard that teaching. There was a problem, so the father had to send his son to fix things. Well, that is the result of this doctrine of original sin. This led to a church view that assumed the total depravity of man. Some of you from the Reform have heard that term. Some from Roman Catholic tradition have heard that term, the depravity of man. Jesus never once taught the depravity of man. We'll talk more about this a little later. So that's original sin. Everybody, I give you something there to think through? Now we're going to look at two basic views, motifs, they're often called uh, uh, theories, but, but I want to just call them a view. And the first one is penal substitutionary atonement. 
which I'll from now on call PSA, Penal Substitutionary Atonement. It's a big term for what probably 85% of us have grown up thinking was just a fait accompli, that's all there is, that's, that's the Bible. But it is a theory. Now let's take some time and look at it. From the time of the Reformation, PSA became the predominant way of explaining what took place on the cross. This was why the cross was necessary. Before we look closer at this, I want to make a few overarching statements, convictions of mine. Number one, God, on the cross, God is not committing violence. God is not committing violence against his son. Instead, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is making himself a willing victim of the violence that entered the creation when man first rebelled. The violence of the cross is not violence from the Father, but man's and the principalities and powers that influence man. That's the origin of it. Number two, the crucifixion is an event in the triune life of God. It is not nor should it ever be interpreted as something done to the Son by the Father, which is exactly what many of us were taught. Three, the wrath of God is not his anger or his vengeance. The wrath of God is his divine consent. I believe his sad, broken-hearted consent. That is the wrath of God. As Romans says, again and again, Romans 1, he gave them over to their sin. He gave them over to the things that they did. So, let's look a little bit at the history of penal substitutionary atonement. In 1098... Notice 1098, almost 1,100 years after the crucifixion. Bishop Anselm, who was uh, the Bishop of Canterbury in England, he wrote something hugely influential called, Why Did God Become Human? Its central thesis was that Jesus went to the cross as a substitution for us. If you're taking notes, Pay attention to that word. He went to the cross as a substitution for us. Why? According to Anselm, a price had to be paid to restore God's honor. This is called satisfaction theory, if anybody cares. This was written... Hello, my friends. This was written... What Anselm wrote, uh, satisfaction theory we're talking about, this was written in the context, everything is context, folks, of a medieval, feudal world that had a concept of, of honor and shame. And honor was the most important thing. I used to teach history a million years ago, and I loved medieval history. And honor, honor's right at the center. It's at the bullseye. 
So that's the worldview of Anselm. Everybody just assumed this is the most important thing. God's honor had been violated by man's sin, and so there was a need to appease an angry, authoritative God. Can you see how that would fit into their worldview? Because they were, they were controlled in a feudal system ultimately by the local lord. And their whole life was to try to appease him and keep out of trouble. So of course that, would, that could leak into the way they thought. Okay? Um, Anselm's view was completely unknown for the first thousand years. Many of you know I love reading the Church Fathers. And this was just unknown. All right? So, this satisfaction theory comes out of a perception of this stern, angry God. Anybody think of another classic American example? I had to study it when I, when I studied American literature. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I'm trying to put it together so you see how we got there. Okay? So in a short time, this satisfaction theory that needed to appease, needed to, to deal with the honor of God, in a short time, in that world that they lived in, it became the accepted view of what happened at the cross. And it was the primary way that the church understood the cross. Now, I want to give you an exception. My first spiritual hero, it was within the first year of me coming to Christ, was St. Francis. I've got lots of books on St. Francis. I, he's remarkable. I told you there's more entries in the Library of Congress on St. Francis than anybody else including Christ. Isn't that interesting? But anyway, the Franciscans saw the cross very differently from this predominant church view. For them, the cross was the greatest revelation of the depth and the totality of God's love for his creation. It was meant to shock us and turn our hearts back to a loving God. For Franciscans, love must be freely given. They're really big on free will. So here's the question. If, if it's true love, that it has to be freely given, then here's the problem. With the, the satisfaction theory, if love needs to be paid for, paid for with Christ, then how can it be love? So, that's Anselm. Now we come to the Reformation. I'm reading a terrific biography right now on Martin Luther by Eric Metaxas. And I've always enjoyed reading Luther. If you guys like reading commentaries, Luther's commentary on Galatians is still 500 years later one of the finest. But I digress once again. <laughs> the Reformation, as you know, happened in the 1500s, the 16th century. C 
Calvin went beyond Anselm's view of God's honor needing to be satisfied. And this is really important. Get this. For Calvin, the issue wasn't God's honor. It was God's justice. Again, it reflected a worldview that was developing as they were coming out of medieval and into the, the modern era. It is really important that we understand that the reformers had a judicial or justice worldview. Forensic is another word. That is their worldview. Everything was about balancing the scales of justice. What has come to be known as PSA, Penal Substitutionary Atonement, is a theory built upon the belief that Christ was punished by the Father in our place. This satisfied the demands of justice so that God could forgive our sins. When Christ died in man's place, according to PSA, he takes the punishment for our sin and thereby sets the believer free from the penal demands of the law. Theology is really important because until I really began to, to dig into this in the last eight or nine or ten years, the gospel that I preached, though couched in friendly words, was a PSA gospel. My wife will tell you, wherever I was in the world, when I came time for people to make a decision, I would talk about all of the sin, all of your sin. He took your sin and my sin, and the, and the Father couldn't even look at the grossness of the sin, and he had to turn away. That's PSA. Now, something I've been teaching pastors quite a lot this last year is that the gospel is unconditionally good news. And they always go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I say, that means it is not transactional. And then they kind of go like this. A transactional gospel says, if you do this, God will do that. And that is not the gospel. There is no if-then to the gospel. If we could get a hold of that, it would change our churches. And all of a sudden, we'd have to have four services a day. <laughs> because almost universally, we preach an if-then transactional gospel. It is built upon the assumption that justice is retributive. Do you know what that word means? Retributive means that the point of justice is to pay the price, is to settle accounts. And that's, that's, that's part of our core fallen nature. That's what causes wars. That's what causes us to have break in relationships. That causes everything. And this assumption that justice is retributive is huge. Once you start to see it, it's everywhere. Just turn on the news tonight. But if, if justice is transactional, if then, if it was a transaction between father and son, 
Salvation becomes a one-time transaction between Jesus and the Father. A one-time event. You see, we're back to this legal paradigm. Instead of a transformational salvation, a transformational salvation that teaches and forms and moves us closer. Now this is eternal life, that you might pray the right prayer. <laughs> this is eternal life, that your doctrine might be pure. This is eternal life, John 17, 3, that you might know him and his only son. That is salvation. That is transformational salvation. Again, the early church never heard of this, anything like this transactional if-then, this need to appease an angry God that the scales of justice must be balanced. You won't find it anywhere. Yet many evangelicals in our day assume this is historic. In fact, they assume it's biblical fact. It is not. Look what the, this PSA worldview has done to the gospel. If we pray the right thing, if we say the right thing, if we do the right thing, then we will receive a good verdict in the heavenly court. <laughs> which is how we see judgment, which is a whole other subject for another night. But I know as a young man, they literally used to set up a courtroom scene so that we could understand <laughs> what happened at the cross. They did. Yeah. And we learned what it was and the Father is the judge and, and Jesus who you know was the, the lawyer who then became tr traded places with the accused, all of that stuff because of this worldview that, that God's justice must be, must be satisfied. That that's what he's concerned about. Retributive justice always leads to fear. It is a violent view of God. If he killed his own son, if he turned his face away from his own son, my word, what happens with my relationship with him when I mess up yet again? Wow. This is how the powers rule. By fear. By intimidation. This is not how God, the triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, interact with their beloved creation. I think that we have projected our love of scorekeeping, which we do, Anybody ever been married? <laughs> Our love of scorekeeping, demanding retributive justice, we've projected that onto God. What happened at Golgotha shows us that it isn't God who's violent. We are. We are. It isn't that God keeps score and demands punishment. We do. And we project that onto him. So there is, there's a little bit on penal substitutionary atonement. And I didn't know there was any other way 
until I stopped simply just going, uh-huh, and I started looking and looking and reading and praying. The gospel is good news, folks. Mm -hmm. It's not conditional good news. It's not a transactional gospel. It is the gospel that changes everything, and an if-then gospel would never change everything. I live, when I live if-then, I'm not changing everything. How about you? This week's episode is brought to you by the new Impact Nations family page. If you're listening to this in the spring of 2020, you're likely locked in your own home, experiencing what has come to be known as social distancing, self-isolation, or in some cases, a shelter-in-place order. But here's the thing. We were made for community, not isolation. We were made for family, and we're determined to have it one way or another. With that in mind, we've launched a new page on our website where we can gather together. Social media is great, but sometimes it's hard to find what you're looking for. We've created a one-stop shop for the Impact Nations family. At impactnations.com family, you will find daily content to engage with. We're regularly hosting Zoom gatherings where you'll be able to join Steve and myself and a whole bunch of our international partners and friends of the podcast. Earlier this week, we had people from all over the world taking communion and worshiping together. You'll be able to join a Zoom conversation, speaking words of encouragement and praying for people like Richard and Annabelle and Randeep. It will be life-giving. We'll also be releasing a new ebook on that page next week. There's a comment box on the page where you can interact with one another and tell us how we can be praying for you. So come, join us at impactnations.com family. We would love to see you there. And now, back to the podcast. So now we come to the, the next major motif, which is known as Christus Victor, the victory of Christ. Last week we looked at the collision of the political and religious systems. Remember when we talked about just what it was like at the cross for Christ? Um, that, that this collision created what N.T. Wright calls a perfect storm. Wright writes about this a lot. Again, God the Father did not kill Jesus. We did. But beyond and underlying that is the truth that the principalities and powers move through us and they killed Jesus. I've talked to you before about the, the, the powers that be that infiltrate all of our power structures. These are the rich and powerful institutions and the demonic spirits that operate within them. The Apostle John. I love the Apostle John. But he says that the entire world is under the power of the evil one. 1 John 5.18 Paul says that Satan is the god of this world. When I first saw that 100 years ago, I was shocked. How could he say that? But he was talking about the principalities and powers. He went on, that was, by the way, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And he goes on in Ephesians 2, 2, to call Satan the ruler of the kingdom of the air. This is a very real war. But it's what Jesus did. He was at war with his whole life. That when he, when he healed the blind man, the kingdom went forward and the kingdom of darkness retreated. 
that, that when he healed, has anybody got that verse? 1 John 3, 8. That all of it, somebody just read it out. Amen. The reason he appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 1 John 3.8. Thanks, Margaret. That everything he did in advancing the kingdom of God, there's two kingdoms and they clashed. By the way, they continue to clash. As we extend the kingdom, and many of you know, some of you travel with me. Lots of you travel with me. We're, we're into frontline kingdom advancement, which means... There is kingdom clash. So understand that in the context of the cross. Everything Jesus was about was centered on vanquishing this, the principalities and powers, this kingdom of darkness. Um, taking back the world that Satan had stolen and restoring its rightful representatives, that's us, to their position of guardians of the earth. Everything he did was about that. That was his great purpose. In this Christus Victor view, Jesus died as our substitute, yes. And he bore our sin and guilt, yes. That's why I said at the beginning, don't ever lose track that the cross deals with sin. But he did it by voluntarily experiencing the full force of Satan's kingdom that we have allowed to reign on the earth. This is how he was victorious. Satan and his kingdom poured everything at him. Everything, everything, everything. It was so dreadful. He died, I was reading this morning, just my morning reading. I was, you know, I was in John 19. He died so quick, Pilate, all the others were amazed. It's because of all the forces of evil. And he never fought back. At any moment he could have, but he never did. So let me say it again. How did he bear our sin and guilt? By voluntarily experiencing the full force of the kingdom of darkness, of Satan. Now, I want to switch a little bit we're going to be a little shorter tonight i think i have a dear friend some of you know brad jerzak and uh i was looking at some stuff that he had sent me a year or two ago and i thought this is concise and clear so i'm going to just share some of brad's stuff with you about this whole issue of christos victor instead of penal substitutionary atonement okay when the apostles say that Christ suffered and died for us once and for all, if you're taking notes, that's Romans 6.10, Hebrews 9.28. Hebrews is really, really big, chapter 7 through 9, on the once for all theme of the cross, okay? And 1 Peter 3.18, that he died once for all for the forgiveness of sins, and not ours only, but everybody's. What does that actually mean? He died for our sins. What does that mean? Among the metaphors used for what sin holds over the sinner are wages. Remember the wages of sin is death? 
Romans 6.23. Those were all the verses they taught us in the old reform movement anyway. Um, or debt, forgive us our debts. Having collectively turned from God, who is our source of life, and turning to sin, which is the source of death, humanity has come under the domination of sin and its fruit. There's no two ways about that. It goes back to what I said half an hour ago, the propensity to sin. It's easier to do evil than to do good. That is not the same as we all sinned when Adam sinned. And we talked about that a few minutes ago. Secondly, the New Testament identifies the destructive consequences of sin as the curse of death. Sin ultimately leads to death. Um, sin condemns us to perish. John 3, 16 to 18. These are facts. Number three, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus has come to rescue, redeem, or ransom. Redeem and ransom are almost interchangeable words. Redeem us from the curse of sin, which is death. He came to redeem us from the curse of sin. How does he do it? Number four, how does he do it? Well, A, God the Son assumed the likeness of human nature. That's Romans 8.3. He did it to heal human nature of the curse. Christ assumes the whole human condition in order to heal it all. This is why I have insisted for years when I preach. He did not just take your sin to the cross. He took your brokenness. He took your woundedness. He took your failures. He took it all to the cross in order to heal it all. <sighs> Which includes the curse of death. Remember I said last week, the mystery of the cross, God is recreating. He's recreating. He's not just saying, there, there, that's okay. The force, this axis of love around which the cosmos turns, I'm using a metaphor, of course, is, is recreative. It's, it's not just trying to fix something. It's recreating it right down to its core. Secondly, Christ proclaims the Father's grace and freedom to forgive sin by freely forgiving sin throughout his whole life and ministry. That's why we talked about the incarnation so much a few weeks ago. It is not just being saved at the cross. Of course that's part of it. His whole life moved in that same direction. He forgave sin freely wherever he was at all the time and he didn't stop when they put him on a cross so he didn't start doing something he hadn't been doing that's what he always did and on the cross for all time and forever he invokes the father's forgiveness remember father forgive them even for the supreme sin of killing God. We talked about that last week. The horror of it. 
of killing God, of, of a naked, bleeding, totally vulnerable God on the cross. And the Father's answer when He said, forgive them, came in two ways, through the resurrection, and before that I believe it was the Father speaking through the Son when He said, it is finished. John 19.30, huge, huge verse. Our sin is forgiven. Our lives are washed clean by this act of mercy and grace. Thirdly, having freely forgiven us, we're reconciled to the Father. But the curse of sin must still be broken. Death itself has to be eradicated. We are forgiven. We are reconciled. But death has got to be eradicated. So Christ does for us what we were unable to do for ourselves. He dies to enter death and so overcome it. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. It sits at the right hand of the Father. He comes to judge the living and the dead. Right? The Apostles' Creed. Next week, we're going to talk about that. You probably haven't had a lot of teaching about the second day. But he went down to Hades to defeat death. Okay? Reconciled at the cross. Then went down to do what only he could do. So if you come back next week, that's what I'll teach you. <laughs> As all the church fathers testify, if Christ were merely God, he could not die. It would be a fake death. Which, by the way, is one of the heresies. In the early, when we talked all about the, the hypostasis, fully God, fully man, and that there were heretical groups that broke off, said, no, 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 he wasn't really man. He just seemed like it. But <laughs> the truth is, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, enters into death to annihilate death. He enters into it, folks. That's what we'll talk about. This victory is made complete in the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Number five, through Christ's incarnation and his crucifixion and his resurrection, he has brought about salvation. What is salvation? It is rescue from Satan, sin, and death for all people. His sacrifice was not largely a pagan view, appeasement of an angry God, but rather the sacrificial love of a God who became man to enter into the human condition, even including death and Hades itself, in order to rescue his beloved children. It's not appeasing an angry God. Number six. Everybody still with me? We're on the home stretch. Yes, Christ died for the forgiveness of sin. But as we've seen, to say he died for our sins is an abbreviation. 
It includes the truths that Christ came and he lived his whole life and he died and he rose for the forgiveness of sin, the cancellation of the curse and the defeat of death. His whole life did that. Now we are invited to return to the open arms of the Father who opened the way back home through his Son. And as we respond to that Father, we experience now what Christ already accomplished. By faith we experience that forgiveness and freedom and salvation from sin and its terrible consequences. We find that just as God in Christ participated in our human nature, we who are in Christ participate in his divine nature. I keep telling you, for me at least, in my personal time in the mornings with the Lord, it's part of it is always John 14, 20. I go, you're in me and I'm in you. And you're in me and I'm in you. It's deep truth. It's not some kind of mantra. So just as God in Christ participated in my human nature, because I'm in Christ, I participate in his divine nature. As he took on our likeness to heal humanity, we are transformed more and more into his likeness and glory. Right? 2 Corinthians 3.18, we behold. Number seven. This is the testimony of the church fathers. This is the apostolic testimony that is, was received and faith, faithfully preserved by the early church. This is not a theory of the atonement, but the gospel itself the faith once delivered from the beginning. In this gospel, Jesus is indeed a substitute in that he does vicariously as a man what humanity could not do for itself. What is it that he does for us? God in Christ engaged and experienced the penalty of our sin, namely death itself, and he triumphed over it through his death and resurrection. In exchanging his life for our death, we rise with him in his life and find that death is no more. Now, for those who are still deeply committed to the language of penal substitution, this telling of the gospel takes seriously the penalty of sin, which is death, and the substitution of Christ as our vicarious representative. But it is distinguished from that much later version, the 16th century. It is distinguished from that uh, which identifies the penalty with God's wrath and punishment rather than sin's consequences and its curse. In this telling, God the Word himself, via his incarnation as Christ, saves us from sin and death swallowing them up in the great victory of his grace. Do you hear the difference? So let me just wrap this up. At the heart of the crucifixion is the power and the victory of love 
over evil, of self-giving over grasping, of trust over fear. Secondly, the cross is the, the cruciform, that axis of love. God's arms open wide like the father in the parable, inviting us to come home. This is fundamental to how I preach the gospel around the world. The father is inviting you to come home. And there isn't anything you need to do. There's nothing, I don't say this, but there's nothing transactional about this. If then, it's already done. It is finished. It's not conditional good news. It's miraculous. It's incredible. And it's already done. And I never get tired of preaching the gospel. I never do. Because this is good news. This is a beautiful gospel. And this is a very powerful gospel. And this is the gospel going all the way back to the apostolic succession, right from the beginning. This is the gospel. <sighs> he invites us to come home without condition or merit to just simply receive his welcome. Thirdly, once again, to save us, he experienced the full consequences of sin that we otherwise would have experienced. And in so doing, he broke open the gates of hell, destroyed the power of sin, erased the law that stood against us. It's not God that stands against us. Read Romans carefully. It's the law that stands against us. And thereby freed us to receive the Holy Spirit and to walk in right relationship with God. This is the power of his all-consuming Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Impact Nations podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app or at impactnations.com slash podcast. And don't forget to check out our new family page, where every day there will be new content and exciting ways to interact with the rest of the Impact Nations family. Visit impactnations.com slash family to learn more. Next week, join us on that family page for our second live discussion with Brad Jerzek, where we discuss the mystery of the cross. Thanks and have a great week.